Hello, and thank you for joining the North Point Church Lutes podcast. We're excited that you found us, and we pray that you'll come back often and listen again and again. Each week, we upload the content preached in one of the North Point Church services here in Lutz, and we pray that you'll come back and listen and marinate on what it is that God was teaching us. The more that these messages get into your heart, the more that you have the opportunity to be obedient and allow them to change your life. We believe that God is real and His Word is true, and that has the power to change your life. So let's lean in together and see what it is that God has in store for you today. Well, good morning. Good morning. I'm so grateful to be with you today as we look at our second step, our second chapter of the book of Galatians. Uh, It's an incredible journey, but I want to remind you of the journey we've been on the last 60 days, Uh, and probably a little bit longer than that. But uh, for the last 60 plus days, we have been looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ, meaning his public ministry, leading him up to his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that incredible day that he gave his life for us and then rose again from the from the dead and uh, proving he was God and now have the ability to call him Savior and Lord, and he has uh, given us eternal life, all those that call upon the name of the Lord. So how cool is that? But once we experienced uh, that part with the Easter message, then we moved into a, a new character, and we studied uh, a lot about the, of the life and character of a a man named Saul of Tarsus, which later became somebody we would know as the Apostle Paul. And, uh, and so we got to see early on in, the, in, in the, uh, the transition there between what Jesus did and to, to what's taking place with the Apostle Paul is the church begins to grow. So just keep in mind, what, we, what we've just peered into is the face of the church itself birthing. We, you and I, for the last 60 days, have watched the church begin to birth. If you've been here and watching online or been consistent with your, with your attendance, you've been able to go along that journey with us. Not only have you seen it birth, but you've also seen some of the hardship that's come along the way. How Satan has tried to use people in order to stamp out this gospel message. As we saw Saul of Tarsus doing his best to, to knock out this ministry by destroying Christianity, only to later give his heart to Christ on the road to Damascus. And, and become the Apostle Paul. How cool is this, man, that we get to see it. And so we've been watching the gospel message continue to grow. And so then we talked about how the Apostle Paul began to do some missionary journeys. One of those first missionary journeys was to a place called Antioch. In Antioch, we, we saw uh, God do a great work there. And we know then he went to Galatia, the churches in, in Galatia, and he began to preach a message. And, and as Pastor Corey taught us last week, is that Paul had to kind of go back to Galatia, writing this letter, to kind of correct some errors in their teaching. They were kind of going off the rails. There was some group called the Judaizers who were preaching a different type of gospel. Yes, they were saying, yes, we believe in who Jesus is, but it's not just as simple as that. You know, you, you got to still have all the religious rules. You still need to make sure you're following everything that we set up in the church in general, uh, because after all, this is really the way you're saved. And Jesus, yes, you got that's like the window dressing, but the real work, the crux of it is the works that you do, the religious works that take place. And so we, we're watching the church go from zero to like just blooming out. So I want to put a picture of a world map on the screen behind me. This is the world that you and I live in. It's covered in a lot of water. Thank goodness when that rocket just fell out of the sky, we didn't hit us. So we're good if you paid attention to that. But I want you to pay attention specifically to the star, the little red star that I put on the map. It is over the nation of Israel. And it's interesting to me that that little star represents where humanity would begin. 
It's there that we would, uh, the Garden of Eden would have taken place. It's there that the creation of man, it's there that we would see all of the different pieces of the world kind of transpire. It's there that we would see the, the children of Israel um, in the grand exodus with Moses coming out of Egypt and then crossing the Red Sea moment happens right there in that little spot. We would see also, this is where Joshua would lead so many incredible journeys. We'd see the judges and the kings. We'd see David. We'd see Solomon. We'd see everything plays itself out in this region. It's cool to think that um, such a small little spot on the globe has made such an incredible impact to the world. This is where the gospel began. This is where Jesus' public ministry was. This is where he gave his life for your sins and for my sins. This is where he rose from the dead. This is where he ascended into heaven. This is where that gospel, that small little drop that lands in the water, so to speak, of the world, and with concentric circles, that gospel somehow just cascades into the rest of the world. Somehow that gospel message landed to us. Isn't that nuts? Crazy to think about that. It's also crazy to think if you, do, if you pay attention to anything with, with the world news today, you know that Israel is under a, um, a war you know, with a terrorist organization, Hamas, who has been attacking them. And uh, it's an age-old conflict, and there's nothing new to the, the conflict. But yet again, tensions are rising, and it's heating up. And to, regardless of your political bent or leaning, look here, the bottom line is, that's noteworthy to pay attention to what's happening to Israel. I think it's important that America has an incredible ally with Israel. And I think it's important as Christians that we understand how God has set apart that people, that Jewish people. And although the, the vast majority of the Jews today don't, don't believe and they're still waiting for this Messiah to come, it's still God's chosen people and God is still protecting Israel in a powerful way. You have to admit that. What a small little place, but yet it still has so much power. It can only be from God. And God has a plan for them, and its plan's not completed and not done. And today's message isn't on the world significance of Israel, but I just want you to pay attention that what happens in that little region has global impact. And that's how the gospel began. What happened in that little region had a global impact. And so I want to talk to you today about that and just leave that, uh, that, that star and that map, if you will, on the screen just for a little bit longer um, for those of you watching at home, you may not see that, but um, for those in the room, I do want you to make sure that you can have access to, to see that. The question I want to ask us is, how did the gospel get from there to here? How did it happen? I, I think that it's easy for us to incorrectly ascribe that the gospel reached us. But many times you hear in church that we say that uh, if it hadn't been for those 12 men, the gospel would have never gotten here. Now, that's an accurate statement on one hand, but it's also inaccurate on another hand. Because what took place wasn't just the, the, the individual apostles who began to share the message. It was every believer who began to understand the gospel message of Jesus Christ who would begin to carry out that gospel message. Think about what happened on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the day that the Holy Spirit came down and, and came into the world, so to speak, and, and moved into the hearts of every believer, not just the apostles, but everyone who had seen the resurrected Christ and who knew that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, the church began to explode at this moment in time. They were there. Many of them were there when Jesus was ascending, when he gave that great commission, when he said, go into all the worlds and making disciples, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded and don't forget, I'll be with you 
until the ends of the earth, to the ends of the world. Jesus gave this big mandate. And how the gospel got from there all the way to here is that everyone who understood what Jesus said, not only did they understand their salvation, the simplicity of the gospel, of putting their faith and trust in Christ alone, they also understood, and it, it came from not a sense of obligation, but a sense of a desire that was placed in their heart, this sacred responsibility to do exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. And that was to share the gospel. Are you following me? Is that there was the simplicity of the gospel they understood, but there was a responsibility that they understood because Jesus himself, the one that who, saved, who had saved them, the one that had given their, his life for them, they surrendered their life to Jesus. Not so that Jesus would make their lives better because the early church saying yes to Jesus Christ did not make your life better. It made your life harder. And so there wasn't like the book of Mephesians, like, I just want to get saved, and then, you know what, God will give me direction and clarity, and everything's just going to be good. Look, look, if you're a believer, you know this, just because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't mean that your life is problem-free. We still face hardships, we still face challenges, and we still face struggles, But along with that decision to follow Christ, it wasn't just a decision that benefits you and I. It was surrendering our lives to God and taking hold of a responsibility to make sure that other people around the world know. And we look at this map and we think to ourselves, man, the gospel is spread across the world. But I would argue that it maybe hasn't spread throughout your family, and maybe it hasn't spread throughout your neighborhood, Maybe it hasn't spread throughout your school campus. It still has some work to do. And that work is still our responsibility. And so this morning I want to talk about how that gospel spread. That's the simplicity of the gospel and our sacred responsibility that that is associated with that. So open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to talk about two characters today that no doubt were probably the two most influential and notable trailblazers of Christianity. They were the leaders of the movement, so to speak, but the grassroots effort came through people like us, just common folks who understood the message that God had given to them. And so Peter and Paul were no doubt two of the most influential people. And Peter, the fisherman and the denier of Christ, the one that um, we love to read about in the the days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, because we can so relate to this guy, he later becomes this bold, courageous leader of the church after he's seen the resurrected Christ. And he has a new name, no longer the denier, but now he'll be known as the apostle to the Jews. If you're taking notes, write that down. Peter, known as the apostle to the Jews. But then we got another guy named Paul. Paul, we first met him. He's named Saul. He's a Pharisee. He's the chief persecutor of the church. He's trying to wipe out the Christians. He's a, a born Jew, and, and, um, and, but later, later he becomes the indisputable apostle to the Gentiles. Did you write that down? Peter, the apostle to the Jews, and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And it would seem that Paul somehow was an overnight success. You know, he was just one day uh, traveling to, to persecute the church, and then God intervenes on the road to Damascus, and, and suddenly he is converted, and now he becomes this preacher. But 
it wasn't an overnight success for him. As a matter of fact, it was a pretty long night. A lot of, a lot of years passed by as he would have to assert his, um, his conversion. Paul would have to prove himself everywhere he went. He'd have to ch- share his, his Christian credentials, so to speak. He would have to be reminded of the authority that God had given to him. He would have to tell people about his conversion experience and have to use a lot of undeniable proofs. And as he preached, people would get it that, man, this guy is so different. The sacrifice that Paul was making, Paul at this point in time, when he would write this book, he'd already been stoned and left for dead. This wasn't a guy that was just in it for notoriety and fame. Something had taken place in his life. But not only was Paul a bold person, but there was something else that we need to pay attention to because it really makes sense as to what he's getting ready to do and say in the book of the chapter two of Galatians. Is that Paul was a, because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, That means he was a stickler for details. That means he was a semantics kind of guy. That words mattered. The things that he said specifically mattered, especially when it came to the gospel. He knew that he needed to keep that pure. He needed to keep it right. And he was intentional with everything he said. Not only did he have to keep it right, but he understood time was of the essence. Jesus had given us an assignment to go into all the world. Jesus said he was on his way back. He was going to return one day. We're still waiting for him to return. And so time is of the essence. And just like the game that you and I played when we were kids, that telephone game where you whisper something to the person next to you and you say, you know, I like blue cheese dressing or something. And then next thing you know, it comes around the room and it says, you're a train conductor. It's like, how did that, like, how did, like, how did that happen? Paul understood, like, if if the gospel message had to go from this little tiny spot on the globe and then somehow reach the entire world, this is where it had to go. For in order for that to take place, in order for all that to happen, that gospel message needed to be clear, it needed to be restated, it needed to be re-restated, it needed to be distilled and restated again, it needed to be clarified and then over-clarified so that this message could not be watered down. And what had happened is that he went to Galatia, as, as Corey had, had taught us last week, is that he already had been to these churches in Galatia, and he taught the simplicity of the gospel. And then the Judaizers, those that the religious leaders of the day, those that, 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 um, you know, th- that owned kind of the corner, so to speak, on religious rules and how we did all these things, the Judaizers came in and said, look, 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 we get it, following Jesus, we get it, he's the way. But it's kind of a religious rule thing and a Jesus thing that really puts this gospel together. And so they were kind of adding to the gospel and Paul's like, oh no, you didn't. And so Paul gets upset and he tries to set the record straight. But see, Paul is a semantics person and words matter. And so Paul has got to back up and he's got to set the record straight. And so when we see this in him, we'll recognize a little bit of how he's writing and kind of the point of view of which he's speaking from. So Galatians chapter two begins like this. Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem. See, it wasn't just an overnight thing. Paul, 14 later years now, he went back to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas and Titus came along also. And I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. And while I was there, I met privately with those who, consider, who were considered to be the leaders of the church. And I shared with them the message that I've been preaching to the Gentiles. You see, I wanted to make sure that they were in agreement with me, for I feared that all my efforts would have been wasted and that I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me. They didn't even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, although he was a Gentile. And verse 6 says, the leaders of the church had nothing to add with what I was preaching. All right, let me just make sense of what that is for you. 
Remember, Paul had to reassert everywhere he went that he was qualified, he had the authority, and this is what he was doing. And so this was kind of customary for him to kind of build a case for who he was. But Paul said, look, let me take it a little bit further for you. I know that what I want you to trust everything I'm saying for face value, but here's the process I went through in order to bring this message to you. I took a lot of care to carry this semantics forward to make sure that it was completely clear of everything that this gospel message is super simple, and, but you can mess it up. You can overcomplicate it and you can oversimplify it. So let me try to explain what I did. I went to all the, uh, the known religious leaders of the day and I said, all right, guys, let me tell you how I understand and how I'm communicating, how I'm preaching the gospel to everyone. And so he found all the leaders and he said, this is what I say. This is what I do. Because I don't want to, if, if we're talking some different language, I'm just wasting my time. If, if we aren't even on this level playing field, then, then what's the point of all this? So Paul, he sits down with these guys. And so after they hear what he's preaching, they go, man, you got it 100% right. You, you, we are fully lockstep. We're, we're, we're in lockstep with one another in terms of this gospel message. And Paul's saying, all right, so not just by my authority, but by all the leaders. Now, keep in mind, this is the first century church. These are people that saw Jesus with their own eyes. It hasn't been watered down like it has been so far to us, right? We're the opportunity for us to be twisted and mess up this gospel. And so this is right there in the beginning. He's talking to the people who've been there. They've been in the room where it happened, right? They, they've seen it. My Hamilton people just spoke up. I heard it. <laughs> Suddenly, he's got, his, he's got his audience. He said, okay. You're listening to me. He said, so I told him everything. They didn't have anything to add. So verse 7, instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility to preach the gospel. They validated me. They, they validated me as the preacher to the Gentiles. Remember I said earlier, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles? Well, right here he says, I shared with my perspective and what I'm understanding about this salvation. And they're like, yes, we totally see it. And we see that you're gifted to win and to share and to, and to share the gospel to the Gentiles just as they had given Peter the responsibility to preach to the Jews. He's like, so we're, we're, so to speak, equals. For the same God, verse 8, who worked through Peter as an apostle to the Jews, also is working through me as an apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James and Peter and John, who were known as pillars of the church, they also recognized the gift that God's given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued to work with the Jews. See, Paul was validating his role and his authority and his niche. This is, what I, this is my, my niche, I guess you say. I don't know if some of you smart people say stuff like that. Corey would know. But <laughs> their only suggestion, Paul said, that they, they totally agree with me, but they, their only suggestion that they said to me was this. We suggest that you keep on helping the poor which Paul says, which I've always been eager to do. They say, just keep a focus on, on caring for others when you give this message. And, and you know what? I think that's why they said, and I'm reading into it, but I think you'd see it with me, is that we know two things about Peter and Paul. These guys were headstrong guys. They were um, a little bit of bull in a china shop kind of people, weren't they? Um, they just spoke directly. They could care less if they made friends or enemies in the process. And we, we see it all through Scripture. Peter did it. Paul did it. Paul said it in Galatians 1. I'm not trying to make friends with what I say. And so, but his peers would say, you got the message right. Just make sure that you continue to take care of the needs of the poor. And I think what they're trying to say is, Paul, listen, your message is going to be so much better and easier and readily heard if you mix it with acts of love and service and kindness towards other people. 
I, I, you know, and, and we, we have in our, in our cafe um, a little plaque that our staff came up with these, these core values. And we, one of the core values lines up with this exact statement. That practical help, it paves the way for you and I to share our eternal hope. People will listen to you if they know you care about them. Instead of just hitting them with truth and telling them what God's word says to change this and do this, look, that doesn't really win people over. So show them that you love them and then tell them where that love comes from. So I think they were, in, in a soft way, maybe telling Paul that's the one thing that they would suggest to him. And so you can see that Paul now is the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter is the apostle to the Jews and their co-equals, right? We can see that. Uh, the, the church recognizes it. Paul recognizes it. You and I recognize it. And so then what happens next is something very interesting. It's actually very confrontational. So now they, he spent time kind of putting himself on the same level as Peter. And now he's getting ready to call out Peter publicly in front of everybody. Now, is that, is that cool? That's like, dude, really? That's like, did you just do that? Like, couldn't we do this privately? So what is it that, that Paul thought so important that he had to call out Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles? What is it that Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles felt like he had to call out Peter the Apostle to the Jews in a public manner? Well, let's read and see, because it's significant. It's significant. Remember, Paul is a semantics person. We've got to get the details right, because this gospel has to leave this part of the world and reverberate into the rest of the world, and it cannot be watered down, and it cannot have legalism, it can't have religious rules. It has to be simple, but yet clear, and people need to understand it. So here's what he said. It was verse 11. Paul writes, but when Peter came to Antioch, I I had to oppose him. I had to oppose him face to face, (laughs) because what he did was wrong. That's a pretty big thing to say. I mean, Peter is the guy that Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Peter's the guy that walks on water. Peter, Peter, come on. The apostle to the Jews and what he's doing is wrong. Well, what did Peter do? Let's read on in verse 12. It says, when he, or Peter, when Peter first arrived in Antioch, here's what Peter did. Subtle, but it's big. He ate with the Gentile believers. Remember, he was the apostle to the Jews, and he's eating with Gentiles, okay? So when Peter first arrived at Antioch, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. And I have to ask myself, how do they know these guys are not circumcised? (laughs) What kind of weird handshake did they do? (laughs) You've always wondered that too, haven't you? Okay, let's just get that done with. So, I'm sorry, honey, that you had to hear that. I love you. I love you. My wife sometimes doesn't want to be in the room where it happens. You know what I mean? So so let's go back again just so I don't mess you guys up. Verse 12, when, when Peter first arrived at Antioch, he ate with Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. So when his Jewish friends showed up, Suddenly, Peter's like, I'm not hungry. I'm, I'm good. I had a little snack earlier, a little seek help, and I was, I'm good. And the verse says, why? His motivation. Because he was afraid of criticism from these people, or the Jews, who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And as a result, what happened? So he, basically, he's kind of two-faced, isn't it? You see that? I'm with the Gentiles. We're like, hey, we're cool. We're hanging out. We're like, man, I love you guys. Jesus loves you, and he died for you, and this is all good. As soon as my Jewish friends show up, 
I'm going to act a little different. I'm going to try not to mess you guys up, but I'm, I'm not going to eat with you, right? It's two-faced. It's, it's a problem. He was afraid of criticism. And it says in verse 13, as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And what's even worse, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Who was Barnabas? He was Paul's right-hand man. Paul and Barnabas on the missionary journeys. So Paul is like, dude, you like messed up my guy. This was stupid. This was wrong. This was, this was hypocrisy. This is, you're messing up the gospel, dude. I'm going to call you out. So verse 14, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all the others, he says, look, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, well, why now are you trying to make the Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? It's a double standard. You're a Jewish person and you no longer live by the law, but yet all of a sudden when the Gentiles are around, your Jewish friends are around, you live by the law. This is, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's hypocrisy. It's legalism. Now pay attention what happens next because the next three verses can get confusing if you don't lean in and listen. He goes on to kind of explain a little bit more about this detail. He says, yet yet we know, Peter, look, we know. And what he's saying is like, you and I both know. Peter, you you and I both get this. We understand that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by obeying the law. We know that. And, and by the way, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of what? Our faith in Christ, not because we're obeying the law. He says no one's ever been made right with God for obeying the law. It's not about obeying the law that saves you. It's not about the religious rules that you do that save you. So furthering his point, he says, but suppose we, suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ alone, and that then later we're found guilty through legalism, because we've abandoned the law. Well, does that mean that Christ led us into sin? Are you following that? He's like, look, okay, so, so we come to Christ alone, but yet there's a set of rules that we didn't know about, and we're breaking them, and then all of a sudden we're in trouble with God. Did God, did Jesus, like, tell us wrong and get us in trouble? He says, absolutely not. You see that in verse 17? Absolutely not. That's not how it works. And then Paul says, rather, look, I, I am a sinner. I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law that I already tore down. Christ tore it down. We can't just put it back because it feels good to us, because it's our tradition, because it protects the church in general, the capital C church of the day, you know, so that the religious rules can be followed and that no one loses their jobs or their authority or their respect. You see how it got really messy? I am a sinner if I rebuild the old law. For when I try, when Paul says, when I try to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law, and I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I could just live for Christ. I want you to think about who said that statement. Paul said that statement. He said, I want to hear, let you hear it again. When I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I had to die to the law. I had to die to it and stop trying to meet all of its requirements so I can live for God. It's important to remember who said that statement. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was a religious zealot. If there'd ever been a religious rule follower, one who could brag and beat his chest about his ability to follow religious laws, it would be him. 
Paul would even brag about that in, in, in later epistles that he would write. He would say, man, there was no one better at keeping the law than me. And, and Paul would go on to say that, that uh, and we know from, from church history that, that the Pharisees had about 613 other laws that they created. And Paul's like, yep, I know them all, and I practice each one of them. And it condemned me. It didn't work. It, didn't, it wouldn't save me. It wouldn't accomplish what it needs to do. And Paul said, for no one can ever be right by obeying the law. When I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. And so I had to die to the law instead of trying to meet all its requirements so I can live with God. Isn't that huge? Huge, 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 huge. Especially when you realize you said it. Man, that's big. That's big to me. You see, the simplicity of the gospel, if Paul was here today, in the best way I know how to communicate it, in the way that I think would honor him, in the way that he was trying to make sure that it would find us well and that we would carry this gospel forward, is not to overcomplicate it and not to oversimplify it, the gospel is simple, but it has been oversimplified. Have you ever been to a church or an event where they just say, pray this prayer from where you are, you're going to be good. And, and, and you know that you were more about a head count because they were counting you for some reason. And you don't really, you're like, I don't know what, I, they could care less about what happened next with you. You know, you've been in those situations. I know you have. I, I've been in those situations. We've also have been in situations where the gospel has been overcomplicated, where there's been so much stuff added to it whether that's been a denomination or a religious sect and that you've been a part of. And it's just like, uh, I just can't seem to continually to do all the things I'm supposed to do. And you feel like because you're not doing all the things you're supposed to do, there's some type of gap that's opening up and that God is disappointed in you. But here's the deal. Hear me clearly. God, your, your relationship with God is not performance-based. Your salvation, when you and I place our faith and trust in Christ, and here's the simplicity of the gospel, don't meet it, don't miss this. And when we do this, it is, not, it is not anything that you and I can do. It's what's already been done. Jesus Christ, God's son, came to fix a problem in this world, and that is to take away the sins of the world for all who would choose to put their faith and trust in him, surrendering your life to Jesus. The gospel is simply this. By grace... You are saved through faith and not anything that you can do to earn it. It's just a gift from God. By grace, you are saved. What's the grace? You didn't deserve it. What you deserved, if you got what you deserved, look, I don't want what I deserve. I know my heart too well. By grace, I was saved and I put my faith in him. What does it mean to put my faith in him? It means I surrendered my life to him. It means that I want everything that he wants for me. It means that he loves me and I want to give my life to him. I'm going to place my faith and trust, which means I'm going to place, I'm not going to lean on anything on myself anymore. I'm only going to thrust myself in his direction, which means I have to surrender, fall into his mercy, fall into his grace, and trust him for my salvation. This is what salvation it looks like. Salvation is not, I want to ask the Lord to be my Savior because I have a list of needs. First of all, I have a sin problem. I'd sure like that to go away. I would hate to burn in hell. That sounds bad. So let's take rid of that problem. And then I would like to be content with the things I have and maybe have a little bit more and live a blessed life and then maybe have pretty decent kids. And It's not a me-centered gospel where God's going to do things for you to make your life better. If you come to Christ that way, you've bought into the wrong gospel. And I'm sorry to tell you that. 
But if you bought into the gospel by understanding that you have a price of, of, a, of a debt of sin that you could not pay, and you realize that there's only one way to, be, to have that payment gone is that someone else has to pay it because I can pay it myself, but it cost me my life eternally, or I can let Jesus pay it if he would. And he says, yes, I have grace, mercy, and love for you. Just put your faith in me, surrender your life to me, and I'll give you all that. That's the gospel. But there's something beautiful that happens when we have that transaction with God. When you and I surrender our lives to God, not only do we have a debt of gratitude, I mean, why wouldn't you be grateful? God just solved an eternal problem for you in addition to giving you glorious benefits on earth that that are just the fringe benefits, quite frankly, of being a child of God. Why wouldn't you... Why wouldn't you love that? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't it be great? But when you surrender your life with God to God, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. It convicts us of further sins. It teaches us how to repent and to return to God when we screw up this relationship again. He's there that I can go directly to God. I don't need somebody else. I go directly to God and I pray and say, Lord, I messed up. You have a change of heart, which results in a change of direction. And God says, I forgive you of your sins and I cleanse you and restores that relationship. It's so beautiful. But we are not only just saved for the benefit that it brings to our lives. Paul would explain in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, which is verses that many of you have memorized. I want to read them to you today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. Faith alone. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Many of you have memorized that, right? You're nodding your head, I see that you memorized that. But verse 10 is where I think maybe we miss a little bit. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so you just told me it's not about religious rules and doing good works in order to be saved, but now I got good works added in here. So what just got jacked up in this theology? Like, how, can you make sense of it for me? The, the, gospel, the, the, the gospel that's not true is a gospel that says you have to do something in order to be saved. But the gospel that is true is that when you trust God in faith alone in Jesus Christ and you, and you receive the Holy Spirit as, a, as, as that transaction, as you surrender your life, you've replaced it now with the Holy Spirit coming into your life, there is not only a debt of gratitude and joy, but there's a part of you that just now naturally, supernaturally, desires to join the good work that God is doing in this work. What is the good work? We don't have to look far from the first century church of what they figured it out. The good work that the first century church did is that they shared the gospel. It wasn't like, well, we have to like, be morally good and we have to make sure that we don't cheat on our taxes and we don't have to make sure that we don't, maybe we adopt the puppy. Or not. I mean, like, I'm going to be a good person. And people weren't looking for social justice things in order to be good people, in order to validate who they were as Christians. Are you following me? It was they were saved for a purpose. And the, 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 the early church understood it. Here's the purpose. Jesus died for our sins. I saw that happen. Think about the early church. Okay, I saw G. I heard him speak. 
I've watched him die. I've now seen him on a cross and now I've seen him resurrected. And he's telling me there's only one responsibility. Put your faith in me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And make sure that you go into all the world and tell everyone about this resurrected Christ. Share the gospel. And they're like, okay, I get it. And it wasn't that you had to pull their teeth in which to do it. It wasn't something you had to manipulate in which to do it. It was just like, are you kidding me? Why wouldn't everybody want to hear this message? It is the greatest news in the history of the world. This is the kind of message that doesn't need a telephone, a text message, a high-speed transit. It doesn't need satellite dishes. And somehow or another, a message like that, where people who just get and understand it, is going to move from a little place like Israel and in concentric circles move all the way to Lutz and Land Lakes. How cool is that, folks? It's because the believers, when they finally placed their faith and trust in Christ, understood, I have a sacred responsibility. There's a simplicity of the gospel, but there's a sacred responsibility of the gospel as well. Is that a legalistic work that you have to do? No. Although I wish God would have made it maybe a little more complex for us because I think that we'd be more effective. Because I think, sadly, many of us look into the face of what God's done for us, and we immediately turn inward and allow that salvation just to be for us. But it requires us to die. Galatians 2.20, Paul would describe it this way. That my old self, he's talking about his conversion. My old self has been crucified with Christ. There's the surrender. Do you see the picture of surrender? Like, here's my life, and I'm just, I'm going to, like, crucify it. I'm going to lay it down. It's no longer mine. When, I, when you crucify your life, by the way, you don't really have a lot of control anymore. Like, you, know, you get it? The, think of the metaphor. You're like, you're done. You're like, I have no, and it's not that you're, you're, you're submitting yourself to a bad thing. You're like, I, what I'm taking hold of is so far worth it. I, I, I'm going to be, I, <laughs> my old self's been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. It's that Holy Spirit that takes up residence inside of him. I laid down my life, and the Holy Spirit's taken up residence inside of me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if I keep the law, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, well, there would be no need for Christ to have died. It was a bigger purpose. Because people can try to live good lives. You can try to live a good life. But God saved you for a purpose. You see, the picture of the map of the gospel as it spreads across the world is not complete until the Lord returns. And as I said earlier, that as much as the gospel has reached Land of Lakes and Lutes, there's many people in the room that the gospel has not fully reached their homes and their families their extended families and your neighbors and your neighborhoods and your businesses and your business partners and your aunts and your uncles and so on and so forth. If you and I know someone who doesn't have a relationship with God, then there's an opportunity for you to let the Holy Spirit speak through you to be the mouthpiece. And you know what? how he might do it? <laughs> Practical help paves the way for us to share our eternal hope. Practical help. There are people that you love and care about 
who need to know Jesus Christ and may not listen to you just by walking up and saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. But there's something that (laughs) when you serve someone and you love someone, they just want to listen. Maybe it's time for you to just to get engaged in that conversation, to be involved in their life, and then be bold enough to share your eternal hope that you have inside of you. So I guess my question for you is, would you say that, you've crucif- that your life has been crucified with Christ? If you're living for yourself, then that question may have to be answered no. But if you're living for Christ, and the good, he called us in advance for the good works that he's asked us to do. The only work that I can see Jesus asking us to do is to go into all the world and make disciples. Has that feeling inside your heart grown strangely dim over the years? Maybe when you first became a believer, it just seemed right. and You're like fired up and ready to do this. But now you're like, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I'm scared to share. I'm scared to talk. That's not from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you and gives you power to do it. I challenged you a while back that you would you and I need to invest in the relationships around us, one neighbor and one neighborhood at a time. To be thinking about the people who live on your left and right and people who live directly across the street from you. Two neighbors down on each side and the three neighbors across the street. To begin the conversation, to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. To do something practical to help them, to show love in a practical way for an opportunity that one day that maybe you can share your eternal hope and invite them to church. When I spoke that message, many people replied to me and said, man, I love that message. I'm all on fire for that. But can I ask you, is the fire still burning there? This is a reminder today for you to say, it's time for me to take that seriously. There's still work for us to do. Hear me clearly. It's not religious rule following I'm asking you to do. All I'm simply asking you to do, surrender your life to Christ And let's get a part of doing what Jesus told us to do when he left. That's going to bring you incredible joy in your life. And I want you to experience that. Can I pray for you as we close our service? If you just bow your heads with me this morning, and as our deacons and our elders and some of our church leaders are going to come to the front in preparation for our final song, just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I don't want to embarrass anyone. I just want to pray for you. But as our deacons, as our elders, and some of their wives, as well as some of our leaders are coming up here for prayer, I want you to know that we're here to pray with you and pray for you. I don't know what you're dealing with and how this message is landing with you today. Maybe you're just dealing with crushing problems in the world and you just need to, you need to be able to lay those at God's feet and you want to have someone pray for you this morning. We're here to do that. But we're also here to help you navigate a decision to follow Christ. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then today is the day you can do that. Today is the day you can simply ask him to be your forgiver and your leader. You surrender your life to him. It's a big deal. Being crucified with Christ, you say, Lord, I'm surrendering my life to you. Man, I'm scared a little bit how I'm doing this, but man, I just want this. I want, I want to have not only my, my sins forgiven, but I want to have an eternal home with you in heaven. And I, and I understand there's no way I can do that in my own strength. I can't just follow religious rules to get there. I'm going to have to give my life to you. And so people may f- think I'm crazy and people might 
argue with what I did, but here's the bottom line is I want it. And so God, today you have it. My life, it's yours. If that describes you today, I just want to encourage you during this final song, as we sing about that cornerstone of our faith, Jesus Christ, Christ alone, come talk to one of our leaders up here and have them pray with you. If you have a lot of questions and you want to go on the prayer patio, they'll be glad to take you out there for five minutes. We have some new believer information they'd love to talk to you about and help you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're watching at home today or even after this message and you wish you to walk down the aisle, I want to encourage you to text the word surrender to 97000. When you do that, you'll be given a few options, uh, some choices to let us know better about your decision today, whether you're making a decision to follow Christ, you want to rededicate your life, or you still have some questions. We want to, we want to come alongside you. So send the word surrender to 97000. It's not going to be a big, crazy thing that happens. We're just going to get some good information to you, I promise. But man, this is what we exist for is to help ordinary people like you take your next step with an extraordinary God. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. Thank you for Paul being so vigilant and keeping it pure so that it can land here in Lutz this morning so that we can understand that this is not a mystery and some difficult thing or some legalistic thing we have to do. It's a simple transaction of us surrendering our lives and taking your life in return and then living for you by following your precepts. Man, I don't know how not everyone in the room wouldn't want this, Lord. So I just ask right now that you would just shut Satan up in the minds of many hearts today and give people the courage to say yes to Jesus today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.